0: All right, welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated. Today we are going to continue our run-up to the Civil War. Today we're going to talk about the election of 1860 as well as the secession of the southern states. The election of 1860 features four candidates, Lincoln, Douglas, Breckinridge, and Bell. And with us, as always, is our resident history buff, Jeannie Zanakis. Jeannie, take it away. The election of 1860 saw Four presidential hopefuls. The Democratic Party had split. Northern and Southern Democrats could not agree over their position on the extension of slavery into the territories or for a candidate for that matter. So they ran two. John Breckinridge, who was from Kentucky and had served as James Buchanan's vice president, the two men did not work together much as president and vice president, yet when he ran for president, Buchanan, along with two other former presidents, endorsed him. Breckinridge, who came from a wealthy Kentucky family, was a lawyer. He served in the Kentucky legislature and was a member of the House of Representatives. He was also a slave owner. As the South's candidate, he supported the passage of a federal law protecting slaveholders' interests living in Western territories. Breckinridge was friendly with opposing candidate Stephen A. Douglas, and while he had the support of many political heavyweights, he came in third in the popular vote and in second place in the Electoral College. He even lost his home state of Kentucky to John Bell. As the outgoing vice president, it was his responsibility to announce the election results and declared Abraham Lincoln the president-elect. He briefly served in the Senate and attempted to work for unity between the North and the South. He would eventually pick sides and joined the Confederacy, even serving as President Jefferson Davis's secretary of war. He would flee the United States after the end of the Civil War, and after President Andrew Johnson pardoned former Confederate officials, he was able to return to the United States. The once former vice president of the United States and presidential candidate was now considered a traitor. The short-lived Constitutional Party, which was made up of mostly former Whigs, who hadn't joined either the Democrats or the Republicans, they ran candidate John Bell. The Constitutional Union Party hoped to prevent secession and preserve the union by avoiding debates over slavery entirely. Party members knew winning was a long shot at best, but the hope was that no candidate would win the majority of votes needed in the Electoral College. And then... The election would be decided in the House of Representatives. Their candidate might be seen as the least dangerous candidate to the North and to the South and might have a shot at winning. This, of course, did not happen. The Northern Democrats put up Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas. The election of 1860 is often discussed in terms of it being a battle between Lincoln and Douglas. While Douglas came in second place in the popular vote, he received the least number of Electoral College votes among the four candidates. Douglas, like Breckinridge, supported the notion of popular sovereignty. After all, it had been Douglas who supported the Kansas Nebraska Act. He put his full support behind it, thinking that it would help him in his future bid for the presidency. Douglas, who had served as a member of the House of Representatives and then went on to become a senator from Illinois, he served a long political career. During his time in the legislative branch, he was a staunch supporter of westward expansion and, of course, fully supported popular sovereignty. When it came to slavery, he felt it was an an issue each state had the right to decide for itself. When it came to racial equality, he was quoted as saying many times that he did not believe blacks and whites to be equal and that even though in his home state of Illinois slavery was illegal, Blacks or Negroes, as was the most common label of the time period, should not be citizens or given the right to vote. It was not the fashion, as they say, for presidential candidates to promote themselves. But Douglas went around giving speeches on his own behalf. His battle with Lincoln in the election of 1860 was not their first. The two men had faced off in 1858 for a seat in the U.S. Senate. The newly created Republican Party put forth Abraham Lincoln, originally born in Kentucky, but lived the majority of his life in Illinois. Abraham Lincoln was a former Whig who had served in the Illinois state legislature and served one term in the House of Representatives. Working in Illinois as a lawyer after he briefly left politics, he tried twice to win a seat in the United States Senate and lost both times. He made a name for himself in 1858 when he challenged incumbent Senator Stephen A. Douglas for his seat in the Senate representing Illinois. This was a fierce campaign in 1858, which caught national attention. Douglas, who had gained both supporters and opponents throughout the country with, which his, with his support, for popular sovereignty would prove to be a you know a real tough opponent for Lincoln. In 1858, Lincoln and Douglas traveled throughout the state of Illinois partaking in a series of seven 3-hour long debates. People traveled great distances to hear the two men debate and the transcripts were often reprinted in newspapers throughout the country. The main topic of the debate was slavery. The seven cities the debates were held in represented seven of the nine congressional districts in the state. If you read the transcripts of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, you can see the differences in their tones based on the location of their audience. This was a charge each candidate made against each other, which they both denied. For example, in the third debate in Jonesboro, Illinois, which is in southern Illinois, Douglas used Lincoln's famous House Divided speech against him, using the quote, and this is a direct quote from the transcripts Lincoln says that a House divided against itself cannot stand, and pretends that this scriptural quotation, this language of our Lord and Master, is applicable to the American Union and the American Constitution. Washington and his compeers in the convention that framed the Constitution made this government divided into free and slave states. It was composed then of 13 sovereign and independent states, each having sovereign authority over its local and domestic institutions and all bound together by the federal Constitution. Mr. Lincoln likens that bond of the federal constitution joining free and slave states together to a house divided against itself and says that it is contrary to the law of God and cannot stand. When did he learn and by what authority does he proclaim that this government is contrary to the law of God and cannot stand? It has stood thus divided into free and slave states from its organization up to this day. Douglass goes on that, that debate to affirm his position on racial equality. He talks of how Illinois has chosen not to allow slavery, but that they have also chosen not to grant citizenship to blacks or the right to vote for Lincoln there is often this mystical shroud that blankets his political legacy in response to Douglas's claims Lincoln responds with you know within this fierce debate and violence erupting over the issue of slavery didn't come to a head until Douglas meddled with the Missouri compromise line he talks of his support of the fugitive slave act because The Supreme Court has stated that slaves are property and that property of slave owners must be protected. Lincoln, when it comes to the issue of slavery, is not the radical Douglas and the Democrats paint him out to be. He is definitely more of a moderate. One of my favorite historians on this topic is a man by the name of Eric Foner, a professor at Columbia University in New York and a leading author on Lincoln, the Civil War and Reconstruction. There are a number of interviews of Foner that you can use on YouTube discussing these topics in your classroom or to gain more insight for your own knowledge. Foner is right when he says that you can't pinpoint Lincoln's stance on slavery to one primary source document, speech, or debate transcript. For Lincoln, his stance on slavery is one that evolves over time I've said it in previous podcasts and I've said it in my classroom thousands of times. People are products of the time in which they live and Abraham Lincoln and other historical figures are no different. They too are products of the time in which they live. For Lincoln, while he had declared that he always felt slavery immoral, he did not favor immediate emancipation. He too felt that whites were superior his views on slavery and the rights of freed blacks changed over the course of the Civil War. To understand why Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party were feared as much as they were by Southern slaveholding states, one just has to look at the Republican Party platform. In the 1860s, the Republican Party advocated for the following. Preserve the rights of the people. Protect the Constitution the rights of the states and the union, many Republicans disagreed with the Dred Scott decision and with popular sovereignty. They supported the Homestead Act, which would help further settle the West, the building of a transcontinental railroad, and a variety of internal improvements, as well as an increase on tariffs. You can see why the Republicans won all but one northern state. But the biggest cause of concern was the Republican belief that slavery should not be extended into the territories. This part of the platform is what led many Southerners to increase talks of secession should Lincoln, the Republican candidate, win the election. For Lincoln, where slavery existed, it could continue to exist, but it would not spread into the territories. For Southern slave-holding states, they knew they would quickly be outnumbered by free-soil states. Those states could then push for legislation to ban slavery. You can see sectionalism alive and well in just the election itself. You basically have two regional contests, Breckinridge versus Bell in the south and Lincoln versus Douglas in the north sectionalism caused a problem for political parties. It all but destroyed the Whigs. It divided the Democrats, which made it possible for Lincoln to win the election. If you go to the website 270towin.com and look at the election results, you see that Abraham Lincoln wins the popular vote with 39.9% and the Electoral College with 180 votes. In the popular vote, Douglas comes in second. But in the Electoral College vote, Breckinridge comes in second, but third in the popular vote. Smithsonian Magazine has a wonderful article by Harold Hoser from November of 2008, which gives almost a play-by-play of how Lincoln spent Election Day in 1860. And it provides a bit of a glimpse into his unassuming personality. Later in the evening, Lincoln watched the returns come in at the Illinois and Mississippi Telegraph Company so he could learn of the election results as soon as they came in. Lincoln won every northern state except New Jersey. New York was actually considered a swing state in the election of 1860. I mean, could you imagine not knowing how New York's results would come in? When word came in that he won New York, which had the greatest number of electoral college votes in the country at the time, his victory was sealed. It's believed that Lincoln kept the paper with New York's results as a souvenir. Lincoln returned home to awaken his wife, Mary Lincoln, telling her, we have been elected. When Lincoln won, the South felt that they would be the minority within the political system. The Southern states looked at Lincoln's election as a clear message from the North that they no longer wanted the South in the Union. The North was willing to deprive them of their property, which threatened their very way of life. The South referred to the Republican Party as the abolitionist party or the black Republicans. Lincoln wasn't even on the ballot in a number of Southern slaveholding states. Voting was different in the election of 1868 than it is today. At that time, you would bring the ballot for the candidate you wanted to the polling station and place it in a particular ballot box. It was not anonymous. Based on what the ballot looked like, people could tell which candidate you were voting for. The threat of violence towards Republican voters in many of those states led the Republicans not to even send ballots there. After the election of 1860 and the success of the Republican Party, southern states began to secede from the Union. The American Battlefield Trust has a very interesting discussion on the secession of southern states. If you go to battlefields.org, you can get full transcripts of the Declaration of Causes that four states issued in addition to the Southern Secession Articles that each state in the Confederacy issued. These Declaration of Causes are very strongly worded, especially South Carolina's. And as you may or may not know, South Carolina was the very first state to secede. So this is a direct quote from South Carolina's Declaration of Causes. And in it, it states, 4th of July, 1776, in a declaration by the colonies that they are and of right ought to be free and independent states, and that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. They further solemnly declare that again, still a direct quote, form of government becomes destructive of the ends for which it was established. It is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government. Thus were established two great principles asserted by the colonies, namely the right of a state to govern itself and the right of a people to abolish a government When it becomes destructive to the ends for which it was instituted. And concurrent with the establishment of these principles was the fact that each colony became and was recognized by the mother country a free, sovereign, and independent state. So if you just look at those words from that document, you can see how strongly they felt that each state should have the right to decide for themselves what it was allowed to do. When the Constitution was created, states entered into a compact with this new, strong, central government. And they typically point to the Tenth Amendment. Any powers not specifically delegated to the federal government are then given to the states. And so these four documents call out a variety of reasons why this drastic measure of secession was taken. They point to the abolition movement, the emergence of the Republican Party, the election of Lincoln, slavery, states' rights, the actions taken by northern states and the federal government that has denied southern slaveholding states of their rights and their property. So an understanding of timeline is very important. Election day is November 6th, 1860. South Carolina becomes the first southern state to to secede on December 20th, 1860. By February of 1861, seven, seven southern states had seceded and the Confederate States of America was created. Four more states would secede by June of 1861. So in February, when seven states had seceded and the Confederate States of America was created, Lincoln had not even been inaugurated. He was not even yet the president. He hadn't even done anything yet. March 4th, 1861, Lincoln is sworn in as president. Once upon a time, as all good story- stories begin, you know, the president was sworn in. So you have to understand the difficulties that emerged having so much time in between election day and and Inauguration Day. As a lame duck president, there was little President Buchanan could do, or wanted to do for that matter. While he felt secession was illegal, but he also felt that the federal government didn't have the right to stop it. In 1933, after President-elect FDR ran into similar problems with outgoing President Hoover and his inaction during the start of what would become known as the Great Depression, the 20th amendment was passed along with presidential succession and the start of the newly elected congressional date. It changed inauguration day from March to noon on January 20th for Lincoln. He had tried repeatedly during the election and after election day to give assurances to southern states that he would not do anything to stop slavery where it already existed and that they had no reason to fear his election. His attempts to lessen the fears of southern states were to no avail. Buchanan's message to Congress in December of 1860 was of no help in preventing southern secession. In his speech, he talks of the illegality of secession, but in the same breath states that the federal government can do nothing to stop it. He proposes an amendment to the Constitution that would appease the South and perhaps prevent a possible civil war, but due to sectionalism and high-rising tensions over the future of slavery, there is no way that a law protecting slavery where it already existed stronger fugitive slave laws and permit slavery in all territories until those territories were to become states and the decision of whether they'd be a free state or a slave state was decided. There's no way that that's going to pass. And so by the end of December, the first southern states seceded and more soon followed. No response from the federal government only emboldened those southern slaveholding states. When he departed by train for his inauguration, Lincoln was quoted as saying, I now leave not knowing when or whether ever I will return with a task before me greater than that which rested upon Washington. In Lincoln's inaugural address, he attempts to reassure the Southern states that slavery would be protected where it already existed. He recognized the South's fears, That a republican had become president and he used quotes from previous speeches to prove his stance on slavery he discussed his belief that it was impossible to destroy the union and he rejected the notion of secession he wanted desperately to prevent a civil war and he made it clear that while he wanted to prevent war he intended to enforce federal law in the south After the attack on Fort Sumter in South Carolina, President Lincoln issued a proclamation which called for a special session of Congress to deal with the rebellion and called for state militias to send troops. The civil war he hoped would never come had arrived. Thank you, Jeannie. Sounds like the election of 1860 was pretty much the point of no return, and Honest Abe is going to have his hands full going into his presidency, and um, that'll wrap this one up. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.